We turn now to the reading and the hearing of God's Word and its preaching as well. And you can see in your bulletin that we're turning again to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. Lately, we've been mining some of the riches that are to be found in this long, glorious psalm that's in God's Word and also about God's Word. It's a full 176 verses long. Last week, we trained our attention on one verse in particular, and it was verse 37, where the psalmist says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And so we considered last week, there's plenty in this world that is worthless, empty, hollow, vain, as Ecclesiastes begins, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. There's plenty in this world that's like that, and so we don't want it to be the case that we're looking at those things with longing. We don't want it to be the case that we're looking at those things carelessly, because that's what leads to longing. And so that's why we pray, we ask God, we ask God for His grace, we say, God, turn my eyes so I don't look at those things that way. Instead, turn my gaze in a very different direction, turn my gaze to Your Word, to Your ways, because there's life in Your ways. And so the prayer becomes, give me life in Your way. So that was last week. That was verse 37. This week we're going to look at two verses, verses 41 and 42 in this psalm. These two verses go together, and sure enough, they're printed together there in your bulletin, in case that helps, over on the bottom right inside. Verses 41 and 42. And again, this past week I got to thinking about the connection between last week and this week. So last week was, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Well, as soon as you say that, as soon as you pray a prayer like that and mean it, in effect, you have taken a stand in the world. And it is not a popular stand that you've taken because of the character of this world. And this is a hard word, but it needs to be acknowledged. It's not just that this world is full of worthless things that you might look at in all the wrong ways. That's true, but it's worse than that. It's also true that this world is full of people who are looking at those things in all the wrong ways. There are people all around you who are looking longingly and carelessly at empty, hollow things. And some of you know this all too well. They could be people who are pretty close to you. Maybe even people who aren't shy about telling you what they think of you and your faith and the stand that you've taken. So as soon as you say, turn my eyes from looking at worthless worthless things, give me life in your ways. As soon as you commit yourself to that way of life and say, God, help me to live it. At that point, you have opened yourself up to the opposition of some other folks. 
Maybe even their scorn, their mockery, their taunting, whether it's to your face or it's behind your back or it's just in the air that we breathe. You've taken that stand. You've opened yourself up to that. So we've got to be realistic about the world that we live in. We've got to be realistic about the setting in which we're called to live the Christian life. It is not idyllic. It is not a peaceful, quiet garden. It's a war zone. A basketball player can practice all he wants, all by himself, at night in a quiet gym. But those aren't game conditions. The setting in which we're called to live this life is a war zone in which we have made ourselves liable to the opposition or worse of others. And so the question becomes, does Psalm 119 have any, anything to say to that? Does Psalm 119 address that? It does. You won't be surprised to hear that it does. After all, there are 176 verses in this psalm, so of course it does. So we're going to train our attention on verses 41 and 42. And those verses are going to help us here. But let me read the whole section. As I've noticed before, this psalm is broken up into these eight-verse sections. So listen to the whole thing, beginning at verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, And shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So there you have verses 41 through 48. We won't train our attention here quite so much, but I can't help but notice verse 45 where he says, I shall walk in a wide place. Remember, it was just a few weeks ago where we learned from the same psalm that the word of God is exceedingly broad. It's roomy. Plenty of room and space for our thinking and living and even our falling and rising. And there's an echo of that here in verse 45. I shall walk in a wide place. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to your word now believing that to be true, that your word is exceedingly broad so that we shall walk in a wide place as those who have committed ourselves to your word, that there's plenty of room in your word for us to think and live so that we can roam your word, even this psalm, And find answers to questions, to find our deepest needs met. And so that becomes our prayer as we turn to your word now. That you would encourage us as those who must live the Christian life in a setting 
that does not make it easy, but you are for us and not against us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, our two verses this morning are the first two verses that I just read for us. There in your bulletin. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. And, and why? Why does he ask that here? Well, then shall I have an answer. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. It's safe to say that when a lot of people thinking, think about having an answer for somebody who's taunting them, what they have in mind is simply having a snappy comeback. A comeback that'll make the other guy look silly and that will make themselves look clever and triumphant in that moment. Ideally, if if there are other people gathered around to witness the confrontation. That's what a lot of people have in mind. And deep down in your heart, perhaps you're admitting that there are times when that's what you have in mind because that's what you really want. And you know how it goes. If they couldn't come up with a clever comeback on the spot, they spend the next 48 hours coming up with all the things that they should have said in order to be clever and triumphant and make the other guy look silly And then they spend the next 48 hours after that wondering if they should send it in an email. Or would that look desperate now? And I'll just save it for the next time we're around the water cooler and hope he says it again. That is not what is driving our psalmist. He wants to have something to say. But he doesn't want to have something to say out of a spirit of vengeance or pride. He wants to have something to say... For the glory of God and for the vindication, for the honor of the servants of God because he knows that's what he is. He is a servant of God. That's what's driving him here. He wants to have an answer like that for a reason like that. So let's think about what we find here in these verses. And I was thinking to to unpack them we can make our way through these three moments to guide us. First of all, the idea of being taunted. We're going to stop and think about that for a minute. And then second of all, the the happy reality of being saved, because that's what he asks for here. So being taunted, being saved, and then third and final, the idea of having an answer when you're taunted. Being taunted, being saved, and having an answer to give. So first of all, the psalmist refers here to him who taunts me. He doesn't say if that's something that's going on right now in his life when he writes these verses. Or if it's something that he's simply envisioning as a possibility for the future. It could be that he's just reflecting poetically on what life is like in this world as somebody who knows and loves God. Now, it's certainly the case that elsewhere in this psalm, later in Psalm 119, you do have some verses that speak quite candidly about persecution and opposition as a present reality. 
This is in the 80s, verse 84. He says, How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. So all that to say, when you take a step back and take in this long psalm as a whole, no question... The reality of persecution, opposition, it's acknowledged in this psalm as a present reality. So back to our verses, verses 41 and 42. At the very least, he's keenly aware of the possibility of being taunted on account of his faith. Because he knows what the world is like. He knows what people are like. And he knows all that because he's living in the real world. As we've been saying before, as we've been making our way through the psalm, our faith is an eyes wide open faith, not head in the sand. The psalmist is quite realistic about what the world's like and what that might mean for him. So he refers here to him who taunts me. And that's another one of those categories that with a little sanctified imagination, it's not hard to fill in. There are all sorts of false and hurtful words that are included in that category of taunting words. It includes people mocking his faith, making it out to be nonsense. It includes people mocking his hope, making him out to be a fool for waiting patiently for the day when he will know the salvation of God. It includes people making false accusations about him, charging him with things he hasn't done. It even includes people making true accusations about him and making the most of things that he's done for his harm, though he's repented of them. Those were all live possibilities in the psalmist's day, They were realities then, and they're just as possible and real now. Today, Christian faith is mocked because, you know, the human race has grown up. We're past all of that now. Why are you holding on to this ancient religious relic? Christian hope is mocked. It's pie in the sky. False accusations. Christians are slandered. True accusations. Christians are torn down because of things they have done, that they've repented of, in such a way that they're judged unfairly for them. Certainly true, other religions are mocked. The whole category of religion is mocked. All sorts of people are slandered and judged unfairly. So it's not to say that Christians are the only people who are on the receiving end of this kind of thing. But it's simply to acknowledge that, yes, these are realities of Christian experience in the world. And you don't have to have some kind of martyr complex to say that. You just have to open your eyes. Whether it's a book-length rant written by an atheist with a Ph.D., or just a snide, backhanded remark in a Facebook comment from a so-called friend. 
Ours is a taunted faith. Our family, the Christian church, is a taunted, reproached family. Sometimes you might be on the receiving end of it yourself, and I mean directly, right to your face. But even if you're not, it's out there. As I said before, it could be a whisper behind your back, or it could be just in the air, the noxious air that we breathe in this world. So, for example, we we proclaim the cross, right? That's at the heart of our faith. The, The truth that Jesus, the Son of God, came down and went to that cross and died for our salvation, and the same old response comes back, that's nonsense. And I say that's the same old response because the Apostle Paul was facing that in the first century. 1 Corinthians 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So it's nothing new that we proclaim the cross of Christ and get, and get that kind of response. It's nonsense at best. The world says the message of the cross is positively vindictive and vengeful at worst. Another example, we, we proclaim the coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age, and the same old response comes back, are you seriously still waiting around for that? And again, I say, same old response, because there's nothing new, the apostles faced it. And Peter, in 2 Peter, talks about it. 2 Peter 3, Peter writes, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says, Be ready for it. Be ready for that kind of scoffing. And, and that stings. We can admit that. Because we are people who prize the cross. And to have the answer come back, perhaps come back from people who are close to us, who are loved by us, to have the answer come back, oh, that's, that's folly. That stings. And we're a people who are waiting for Christ to come back. It's, it's practically who we are now. We're a people in waiting. And to have the answer come back, seriously? You're really, you're really waiting for that. It hurts. So we can acknowledge that as, as a reality of Christian experience in this world and therefore a possibility for us from day to day. So that's the first, being taunted. But then we go happily from taunting to salvation. Because he begins here by saying, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Whether he's experiencing it now or anticipating that it might come, this kind of taunting, it leads him to say, in effect, save me. Save me. Let your salvation come to me according to your promise. Now, here too, he doesn't go into detail. These verses are so concise and perhaps even cryptic. He doesn't go into detail about 
what it is that he wants to be saved from. What he has in mind that he wants to be saved from. It could be some trial that he's facing. It could be that it is persecution, opposition, taunting that he's enduring. But even if there is something like that going on, some, some trial, some, some moment of taunting, when a believer cries out for salvation, he's got more in mind than just immediate relief from earthly pains. He doesn't just want the end of this or that trial. He wants more. It's right for us, perfectly natural, to long for relief from some trial that we're enduring, some taunting that we're receiving. We want that kind of relief, but even those blessings, the blessing of relief and a change in circumstances, that can feel empty if we don't have a sense of the favor of God with it. This man wants salvation. And we haven't really done justice to his language if we limit it to immediate relief from earthly pains. Think about some trial you've gone through. It could be something you're going through right now. Conflict at work. Pain in your body. Maybe it is the taunting of somebody who's against you. Or just the quiet whispering that you know is going on. I mean, think about it. If, if that particular conflict is, is resolved so that the pain goes away, so that the taunting is silenced, maybe that person just moves away, takes a different job. If, if that happens, but you don't have a sense of the favor of God in it, even if all of that other stuff has been taken away, can it really be said that you've experienced salvation? No, you you don't just want a reordering of your circumstances. In effect, you want God to come. To come and meet you and hold you and, and comfort you and reassure you that you are His and He is yours and He will hold you fast and usher you into the world to come. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher. This is Spurgeon reflecting upon the very idea of salvation. Spurgeon says this, This is the sum and crown of all mercies, deliverance from all evil, both now and forever. And then he says, What a mass of mercies are heaped together in the one salvation of our Lord Jesus. It includes the mercies which spare us before our conversion and lead up to it. Then comes calling mercy, regenerating mercy, converting mercy, justifying mercy, pardoning mercy, nor can we exclude from complete salvation any of those many mercies which are needed to conduct the believer safe to glory. Salvation is an aggregate of mercies, incalculable in number, priceless in value, incessant in application, eternal in endurance, end quote. That's Spurgeon. This man, this psalmist, wants to be saved. And and he can say that even though, in many ways, he has been already. This man's a believer. So he's already in possession of 
So much that comes to mind when we think about salvation. This is a man who's been regenerated, brought to life. This is a man who's been brought to faith so that he has believed. And by that believing has been forgiven, even justified, and is now even hopeful for the world to come. In all of those ways, he's already been saved. And yet he can say, let your salvation come to me according to your word. Because he knows what life is like in this world. And he wants God to come and meet him in the midst of what he's going through. He wants to be saved. So being taunted was first, being saved was second, and that leads us then finally to the idea of having an answer, right? That's really what he's envisioning here. I'm going to be taunted. Maybe I'm being taunted right now. Save me, O God, so that I'll have an answer. He wants to have something to say. He wants to be able to show, somehow, that his faith is true. He wants to be able to show, somehow, that his hope, his waiting, is well-founded. Or that he's not guilty of the accusations that have been lodged against him. Or that his sins, the ones that he has committed, are not the sum total of who he is. He wants to have something to say. More profoundly, he wants his very life to be a living, breathing answer to the ways being taunted. Even if no words are spoken. And so he, he wants to experience salvation so that he'll have an answer. So that he will be an answer. I mean, think about it. It is an aspect of our salvation that God gives us a firmer grasp of his word. Well, sure enough, as we come to have a firmer grasp of it, it comes to be more characteristic of us that we have a wise word at the ready to answer the words that are spoken at us, even against us. We have something to say. It's also an aspect of our salvation that we come to have a better grasp of the ways of God, God's patient ways, so that we have an answer when we're told that it's just kind of silly to be waiting around for Jesus to come back at the end of time. As Peter says in that same Second Peter passage, he says, we do not, or he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's 2 Peter 3. Right after Peter acknowledges scoffing, Right after he says, be ready for it, he says, we've got an answer for it. And the answer is the patient of God, which has taught us to be patient too. It's an aspect of our salvation that we grow in obedience. The result is our very lives become an answer. Even in those moments when no words are spoken. Paul says this to Titus in Titus 2. He says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works 
and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. I know it doesn't always end that way. That's not always the outcome. But Paul is saying that by the grace of God, we are transformed so that our lives become an answer to the words that are spoken against us. It's Titus chapter 2. And in so many ways, and there are are more, the, the experience of salvation gives us an answer. It gives us something to say. Now, it's certainly true. It it takes wisdom, and wisdom takes time, to know in a given moment whether you should speak up and say something about your faith in a conversation with a colleague or a classmate. Sometimes silence is called for. Sometimes a brief answer and a let's talk more later is called for. So our, our calling is not always, always to be talking and saying everything that might be said in a given moment, and it takes wisdom to sort that out. But the point is, God's word and God's spirit blessing his word in our lives gives us an answer when we need one, and it makes us an answer too. And all of this, perhaps surprisingly, but all of this is beautifully played out in the life and experience of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I mean, first of all, Jesus was taunted. I mean, you know the saying, they kicked him when he was down. In Jesus' case, they taunted him when he was up, when he was up on the cross. That's why I read for us from Matthew 27 earlier in our service. They mocked his faith. He trusts in God as if God were on his side. Sure doesn't look that way now as Jesus is up there dying. They mocked his hope because they thought the cross was the end of him. They reproached him because they said, in effect, he's dying up there because he deserves it. And it was a righteous thing on our part to bring it about because he deserved it. Jesus was taunted. And then our second point applies to Jesus as well, though we've got to tread carefully here because we're talking about the experience of salvation. Jesus was not saved from sin. But he was raised on the third day. He was raised from the dead by the power of God. And in the book of Hebrews, it does say this about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says this. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5. So yes, Jesus was raised. He was vindicated manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. And when when he was raised, it was made clear what was true of him all along. Beloved Son of God, faithful servant of God. He was raised from the dead, exalted into heaven, installed at the Father's right hand, and that's where he is right now, reigning over the universe. And that brings us to our third point, true in Jesus which is that he's got an answer now. Really, Jesus is the answer to all of the taunting. The risen and ascended and reigning and vindicated Christ has an answer for those who taunted him. Jesus can say, in effect, 
Look at me now. You laughed when I said I'd destroy the temple and raise it in three days. Well, look at me now. I've done it. You mocked me for claiming to be the Son of God. Well, look at me now and see that's what I am and have always been. You taunted me for claiming to be the King of Israel. Well, look at me now and look who's wearing the crown. Jesus has an answer. He is the living answer. And that's why we now have an answer. Jesus is our answer, who he is, what he did for us, what he's done for us, what he's going to do when he comes back. What he's going to do for us when he comes back. And isn't that where all of this is headed? When all of this is going to be fulfilled. When Jesus comes back, that will be the completion of his own vindication. That will be the fulfillment of our own salvation. In this life, we don't always have the answer that we should In this life, we don't experience salvation in all of its fullness. In this life, we don't always live up to the calling to be the answer that we ought to be. But on that day, we will. On that day, that final day, Jesus will be able to say to the nations, and they will hear him, he will say, look at me now. And we will say to the nations, yes, look at him now. And we'll even be able to say about us as the church, look at us now. Look at what we've become. Look at the revelation of what we were all along, and the taunting will be silenced. It's like the old game show line, is that your final answer? This right now is not our final answer. October of 2022. But on that day, it will be. On that day, we'll have a final answer. And there will be no comeback coming back then. So I urge you to make this prayer your own. These two verses. Whether you put it precisely like this or not, make it your own to long for salvation so that you have an answer. Not just to have a clever, snappy comeback to make somebody shut up, but a real answer, which is an answer that points to Christ as somebody who has been saved by Christ. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of your spirit, blessing your word in our lives. We are not unaware of what this world is like in which we're called to live for you, to stand for your truth. So we say with the psalmist, let your steadfast love and salvation come, that we might have an answer. And we fix our eyes on Christ, and we see that we have one, for that is what he is and shall ever be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.